What beliefs are essential to Christianity? What doctrines take us too far from true belief? On the road from orthodoxy to heresy, where is the turning point? How do we figure out what's too far in any direction? From the simplicity of faith displayed in The Thief on the Cross, to trying to understand the audience and context of Paul's teachings, it can seem like a harrowing task to understand what's at the core of belief. When it seems like everyone has a different idea of what matters most, can we have any certainty in what's fundamental to our faith at all? We're going to be talking about all of that and much more on today's episode of Theology on Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air. I am Sarah Stone, Outreach Director for Young Adults at MDPC, and joined as always by my lovely co-producer, Evan McClanahan, who is the pastor at First Lutheran in Houston. And uh, today we're joined by two very special guests, one you've seen before, uh, Colin Kerr, is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA and is the founding pastor of Parkside Church. He recently released a new book titled Faith, Hope, Love, The Essentials of Christianity for the Curious, Confused, and Skeptical. I love that title. Colin is joining us today from Charleston, South Carolina, where he lives with his wife and daughter. And then we've got Jeremy Evans, who some of you might recognize from Theology on Tap, but is joining us for the first time on the, on the podcast. He's the pastor at Woodridge in Kingwood, Texas. Prior to becoming pastor at Woodridge, Jeremy taught at Texas A&M University, New Orleans Seminary, and Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, he has authored and edited a number of books ranging from the problem of evil to the concerns related to the war and violence in the Bible. Jeremy is joining us today from Kingwood, that's near Houston, where he lives with his wife, Wendy, and his four daughters. So thank you both for coming and helping us. We are rounding out a three-part series today on essential Christianity, partly inspired by Colin, actually. Um, but it's just something we're always asking, like, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What's kind of a bridge too far? Um, and if you've been listening, you know that part one, uh, we just we explored maybe the dangers of progressive theology. And part two, we explored the dangers of legalism and maybe fundamentalism. Today, we're going to try to find ourselves at some answers about what does it mean to be a Christian um, and what is essential. Um, for those of you that are new to our podcast, Theology on Air is um, linked with and born out of a ministry called Theology on Tap, which is for young adults in Houston, where we talk about faith and culture over craft beer. It's a lot of fun. Um, you can always go to HoustonTOT.com to find out what our next event is. But let's go ahead and just get into it. I'm going to ask each of you to just give us a really brief kind of like, uh, just by like who I am, why I'm interested in this. But if we're going to talk about essential Christianity, we should probably identify what beliefs are essential for being a Christian, assuming every believer doesn't need to have like a full understanding of all theology and essential doctrines. Maybe start by saying what you think is at the core of true Christianity. And of course, it's a big question. We'll just tap the surface and then we'll continue on and, and dive in more. Does one of you want to start us off? What do you think, Colin? You or me? Uh, I'll, I'll throw something out and then you can fill it in maybe. Okay. All right. So, um, the reason why I got interested in this topic is doing campus ministry with college students for eight years, uh, was constantly encountering students that kind of had these like crisis of faith, uh, because they had, a maybe very limited understanding of Christianity or a Christianity that was that came out of a particular uh, denominational lens, and they really had no familiarity with uh, other denominational uh, beliefs, or they had no familiarity with just other non-Christian worldviews. So they get to college and they start going, oh my gosh, um, what, what can I believe? Can I still believe X and still be a believer? Can I believe Y? Do I need to believe this? Uh, and a lot of students I found were actually jettisoning their faith because in some ways they were told, unless you believe in X obscure doctrine or whatever it was denominationally imported, you can't be a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to be, you know, full of integrity uh, as a thinking person. And so they said, well, I was told that I had to jettison my faith. So in light of whatever, uh, I'm actually just going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so I, I wanted to find a book that I could give to students to say, all right, here's just the basics. Um, and there was a couple problems. One of which was that uh, there's great 
volumes on systematic theology, but no college students got time for that. Um, there's some good older books, uh, right? Like John Stott, C.S. Lewis, but there's a lot of modern assumptions placed in them. British English is a little difficult, maybe not always great for a, a postmodern college student. Uh, but the thing that also was probably the most frustrating was that there were books that smuggled in non-essential doctrines into their presentation of essential. And so eventually I got frustrated where I'm like, well, if I can't find the book, I just got to write it. Um, and so what emerged from that was faith, hope, love. And I'll try to summarize like how I got there on here's the essentials and we can, we can unpack it in a little bit. Um, I was always really frustrated with doctrinal bullet points when you go to like a church website, right? They're like, we believe this, this, this. And you're like, well, how are these connected? Like wh what's up with like, why do I have to believe these? They might have some scripture references, but it was always like these kind of floating thought points. And so what I did was kind of create a narrative theology based around some central ideas. And so here are the, the kind of five central concepts. The first of which to essential Christianity is you have to have faith that God has acted in the past. Um, you, if you don't believe that God has ever acted in the past uh, in some concrete way, then you probably don't have Christianity. It's probably pretty impossible to create any sort of Christian view. Now, Christians have different views about to what extent God has acted, metaphorical interpretations, allegorical interpretations of scripture, but you at some point have to agree God acted in history. The second element uh, that I include in the book is that um, we have a hope that God will act in the future. Um, because if you don't believe that God is returning, you don't believe that God is going to uh, do something in the future in a concrete way, again, your implications and how you function in your Christian faith seems to kind of dissolve into something that is not Christian at all. Again, different denominations are going to have different views on the end time, but they all agree that God is going to act definitively in the future. Lastly, in kind of subcategories, um, I said that this idea of God acting in the past and God acting in the future is held together by love. And I know time love gets really this kind of fuzzy connotation, and I kind of warn against that in the book, that we have to match our understanding of love to how it is revealed by the nature of God and the action of God. Um, but I kind of start with three places of love. One is that um, we see love as formative in, in creation by God of people. Then you need to see love as a motivator for reconciliation between God and people. And then lastly, understanding love as our response to God and for people. And so this idea of uh, believing God has acted in the past and that God will act in the future is kind of fused and held together by these kind of three uh, concepts of love and how they've been manifested by God. Uh, or commanded by God through his scriptures. Uh, and what I believe that allows for is a lot of theological diversity, uh, kind of a, an ecumenical uh, understanding of faith, but kind of keeps the essentials and gives us a playground to which to, or a sandbox in which to have conversations and build some, you know, denominational castles. So that's the, the short of it. And we can flesh more of those out in a bit. Yeah, I already have like a thousand questions, but Jeremy, how would you kind of respond to that first question of what the essential doctrines What's at the core of Christianity? Yeah, at, at, at the core of Christianity, there's, there's some things that I, that I certainly agree with Colin on, uh, you know, that God has acted in history. There's specific ways that God acts in history. That means that we also have to have the ability to know things that have happened in history. You know, when you look at the narrative of Scripture, uh, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that I pass on to you what I received as a matter of first importance. And so then he goes on to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and those that he appeared to and so forth. So obviously what Paul wants to focus on is something that has happened that he says we have to keep this story going forward. And we even see in Romans, you know, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved. And so it's not just a matter of having, having faith. It's having faith in something very specific uh, because every person is actually a person of faith, right? Uh, so Paul is trying to tease some things out here about the, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and saying, all right, so who's in? And for Paul, that was a big deal uh, because he understands where he was coming from as, you know, not, you know, as a person that was, was killing the early Christians, he understood probably what was in line for him if he makes the shift. Uh, he was very aware because he was a part of, he was a part of it. Uh, and so he saw he saw the gamut is worth it. You know, it's worth handing my life over to Jesus. You know, when you start talking about matters that are primary or secondary or somebody would say tertiary, you know, things that are even further down the line in matters of importance. I do think it's important that we pull those things apart. When, uh, you know, when I was in in seminary, 
I'll, you know, when I first started, I was more reformed in my theology in a number of ways than I am even now. And what I mean by that is specifically soteriology, that is with regard to the doctrine of salvation. Um, you know, and by the time I'm walking out of seminary, I'd shifted away from some of it, not all of it, but I'd shifted away from some of it. For example, limited atonement. I was like, nah, I'm out. Uh, and I went another way. And so I'd gone from, you know, from kind of a fully orbed five point Calvinist to, you know, what are sometimes called a Christmas Calvinist. There was no L left in my, in my view, you know, even to shifting further away. Now I'm, now I'm more or less in the camp of Molinism, my firm middle knowledge. Um, you get the idea. Uh, those are, those are things that I think are important because it's hard to get away from a really close view, hard reading of scripture. If you're doing that, you're going to have those questions. You just are. I mean, if you look at, at, at Peter, you know, the way that he begins is you have the words predestined and elected in the first two verses. You're going to have questions. What is predestination? What is election? Um, are those matters of first importance? You know, Al Mohler once talked about theological triage, right, and being able to pull these things apart. And I think there's wisdom to that as well. And so when somebody looks at me and they say, well, what do you think is a matter of first importance? I say, we first need to understand, you know, who, who God is. Uh, we really have to understand who God is. That is a matter of first importance. We have to understand how God has worked. That's a matter of first importance. You gave the example before of the thief on the cross, right, Sarah? And with the thief on the cross, he was making a specific statement about the guy that was next to him on another cross, right? He wasn't just making kind of this, you know, general statement about God. He was making a specific statement about Jesus. And so that's a matter of, that's a matter of first importance. Um, that being said, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm in the Baptist tradition. We have specific beliefs about baptism. You know, we are credo Baptists. We are not pedo Baptists and so forth. I think those conversations are interesting. Um, if you look at other, other, uh, practices and other faiths, some of the, the, or denominations, excuse me, the, the difference is about church governance, mm -hmm. right? Are you going to have a hierarchical church governance or are you going to have you know, the autonomy of the local church. Well, those are interesting conversations. That being said, Jesus could have still died on the cross, risen from the dead. Me and a Methodist totally agree on that and have a, a, a unity in Christ that we don't have necessarily with the way that the church is governed. Yeah. So that's why I think that we need to pull these things apart because getting to Colin's point, some things really are essential as to who we are, what we believe and why it matters. I heard a couple of things from both of you that I just want to pick up before we actually go to my second official question. But um, Colin, one thing I noticed in what you said when I loved all of it, I didn't hear anything about um, two things. One, what makes Christianity different from other religions? Now, I'm sure the book flushes that out. I mean, I assume it does. But also, and I, and I care less about making distinctions with other religions and more about making distinctions about Christ, which gets to the second thing that I wonder, which is, do people need to understand sin or that we have a problem for the good news to be good news? We actually just talked about this on a recent podcast. So that's one thing I would love to hear both of you kind of answer. And then the other thing is, with these ideas about what's most important and next important, like Jeremy was talking about, if the nature of God and understanding God is maybe something we call essential. What does that even mean? Because I think somebody could have a very elementary view, like God is good. He loves us. He made us. Boom. Is it that simple? Um, so maybe we can kind of dive into those and then talk about, like, list out some primary and secondary ones. Cause I think you're right. There's going to be plenty of people from lots of denominations in heaven, maybe joking about where people were right or wrong, you know? Right. Well, we'll know then, right? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I can't wait. No, yeah, okay. these secondary and tertiary things will be solved. And be like, ah. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that I do, or I try to make a, a, a distinguishing mark in the book is uh, the difference between what I find is essential to Christianity versus what is saving faith. I'm very careful to, to, to try to define what is saving faith or not saving faith. Mm -hmm. um, because... I just trust that God is capable of doing that. And I imagine we're going to be surprised in some ways. And so when I talk about essential Christianity, I talk about uh, what is essential for kind of the Christian identity and what creates spiritual flourishing. Uh, so that if you did not have that concept, it would be to your spiritual detriment in a significant way. So yes, 
maybe you're still saved. You're a heretic, but like, you know, God's like, yeah, but you're, you're still in. But because you don't believe that, it actually really uh, deforms the potential of your discipleship or spiritual growth. So I think sin is actually a great example of that. Can someone be a believer without a robust theology of sin? Yes. But if you don't have a concept of sin, it really, I think, makes it harder for you to, to grow spiritually and flourish as a believer in the long term. Therefore, uh, sin as a doctrine is pretty essential both to the narrative of Christianity, but also to your sanctification and, of course, justification itself. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. You, you do have to say, you know, when you, when you think about the idea of sin, it also is going to point to something beyond it. It's going to say something about us. Part of that is it's, it's going to identify who we're not, uh, but it's also going to point us to a hope that's beyond us. Yeah. And uh, so that's why you get into some things about, you know, the, the person and work of Christ. You get into the doctrine of the Trinity and so forth. So, yeah, I, I agree with Colin on that point. Uh, but even going back into the early church, they were having to identify that there were some problems with some things that people were saying. Right. And, uh, and doing <laughs> and, and doing. Absolutely. And. Uh, you know, so when you when you go back into the early church, like in Acts in Acts twenty four, Christians were called heretics by the Jews. So the the word was flying around pretty fast, <laughs> right? Uh, and and so you know, part of this was to to create some boundaries as to you know maybe this isn't the right way to say it, but it's it it helps us I think create the picture in our head who it is that really does belong to a specific group. You know, Jews were identifying. Whoa, you're stepping out. And part of what it is that Christians were stepping out on was what it is that they were placing their faith in, who it is that they were placing their faith in. And so you already saw that happening in Acts chapter 24. Um, even in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 2, you know, it says that they're going to be false teachers that are among you. It's not that they're not teachers. They're teaching. They're just teaching you falsely. And they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And so you have people that have positions of authority in a gathering, and they're saying some things that are going to be harmful to them. This is the problem of heresy, right? Is that where there's teaching, there's authority. And then where there's a misplaced authority, you misdirect the people. And so this, to Colin's point, will affect your spiritual formation because it shapes, it shapes the way that you view God. It shapes the way that uh, the way that you view how God interacts with his people and so forth. And so, you know, with Peter, he's like, Hey, keep, keep your eye open because even what they're saying is, is that they're denying the master that bought them. It's an important distinction because it might sound, if someone just tuned in for part of this podcast, they might think it sounds like they're trying to figure out the rules for who's in and who's out. And, and it's not about trying to figure out who's like, you know, in and who's out of the club, it's because we really do believe there's this eternal impact that exactly. souls are on the line, that God loves us, that he chases us, that he rescued us. And we want people to have that hope and that peace and eternal life ultimately. So it's, right. it's not a tribalism thing. It's a, we want people to know it's true. Right. Um, so let's get into it, right? What doctrines should be considered primary? Which ones should be secondary? And maybe which one's even less important for the Christian faith? And why? Uh, a side note here, a recent poll, you guys probably saw this, um, results showed that 30% of people that would classify themselves as evangelicals believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but not necessarily God. Right. Is that one of them? Do people need to think that Jesus was God? I mean, I won't tip my hand, but I think y'all know what I think on that. <laughs> List yeah. some things you think are primary and some things you think aren't. Uh, Wayne Grudem. You just go back and forth like one at a time. Boom. Yes, let's Boom. do that. <laughs> Jeremy, you don't get to say baptism. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Baptized my fourth daughter on Sunday. So congratulations. Good, good day. <laughs> yeah. I didn't totally break down either. I made it through, y'all. It was good. It was Four good. times the charm. <laughs> uh, I said I almost made it through, you know, uh, oh, how, how, how old is she? during the week is what you have to do. You know, you talk through it, but yeah. What, what how, are some, how old is she? I'm sorry. How old is she? She's nine years old. Okay. Cause yeah. that's one of the questions about baptism is like, how old do you have to be? Well, go ahead. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Uh, it, Colin, did you want to start? You want me to, to give it a go? Cause we're, we're asking what is something that is primary, for example, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, if, if we're just going to put it in list form for the sake of time, is, is that what we're going to, you know, I know people, yeah. like bullets on your church website, but uh, you know, we were laughing about that before. If you put it down in, a, in its simplest, in its simplest form, I think you do, you know, cause we are talking about Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, Trinity, incarnation, atonement, Atonement obviously points to the doctrine of sin, which is something that we were talking about before. You're atoning for something. There's an, excuse me, there's an atonement for something, right? Uh, those, I think, have to come out like right off the bat. They, they have to uh, in, terms of, in terms of primary doctrines. They have to. I'm you can build out. I'm going to interrupt for a second here because while we don't have time to get into the doctrines altogether and explain the Trinity, which who could ever explain it, right? But... Just quickly, because some of these are big words for people that maybe are new to this, at least explain just in like one sentence what you mean by things like incarnation, trinity, and atonement, just so people know what we're even just talking about. Okay, so, so when you talk about the doctrine of the trinity, you know, the, the early creeds would affirm that, you know, we believe that God is one, and that speaks to the nature of God, but there are three persons that share a common nature. Now, again, there's a lot more that we could say. Yeah, but we don't need to right now. Okay, so I'm just <laughs> saying it, right? Uh, so those, uh, you know, those persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's one thing to talk about a nature, and it's another thing to talk about persons that share a common nature. Um, but when we talk about the nature of God, you're talking about God's uh, goodness. You're talking about God's uh, self-existence that God is unique, God is uncreated. You're talking about um, God's omniscience, omnipotence, and so forth. So those characteristics, those properties that God possesses, uh, such that, you know, if we're talking about other properties, you're not talking about God anymore, you're talking about something else. Okay. And there are three persons that share those properties, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they do so coexistent. They're coexistent, co-equal, co-eternal, right? Uh, that's the that son is, is Jesus just for people listening right. that are maybe new to this stuff. And that's that right. leads into the second word, big word you use, which is incarnation. Will you define that right. real quickly? So when you talk about the incarnation, you're talking about the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who descends from glory, takes on human form that is here. So he literally puts on, puts on flesh, uh, and, and does something that obviously that we could not do for ourselves. You know, so when you look at the cross and the death of Christ on the cross, this points kind of to the third thing. We talk about the atonement, that is, let's say the at-one-ment, that's the, the bridging of the divide between God and us was done in the person of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. That was, wow, that was good and succinct. Boom, Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> Colin, I, I would love, I know you wanted to go one by one and he listed three and a half. But, he, he's on a roll. Let, let him roll. Yeah. What would you add or what would you maybe push back against? I mean, I th- those are all really essential. And, and let me just uh, affirm particularly the presentation of the atonement, because sometimes one of the doctrines I think that gets non-essentials that gets smuggled into talking about the atonement, right, is a particular type of atonement theory, right? Like you have to believe in penal substitutionary atonement or your view of atonement doesn't count. Uh, now, I like penal substitutionary atonement as one of many atonement theories, but I think one of the ways in which Christians uh, have maybe been problematic is that we've kind of set these atonement theories against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, progressives will do this. Uh, conservatives will do this. They'll kind of pick the one they like, and then they'll say, your atonement theory is a bad one. Um, <laughs> Where really the, the, the fundamental nature of atonement, uh, in, in my view, is this idea that Christ is substituting himself in our place to do what we cannot do. Uh, and there's lots of different ways you can explain that. And actually, you probably should explain that in more than one ways. Um, but that ultimately goes back to what sin has wrought, and therefore you need a God to stand in between. And then how you want to explain it with metaphors and allegories after that and examples, more power to you. Okay, and did you want to add anything to the, so right now the list is Trinity, Incarnation, Atonement, and then part of the Trinity, of course, is God's nature, that he started to list some, like the omnis, that he's uncreated, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I, I think, wanna... yeah, I think there's a few others that are helpful. I don't think they'll be contentious. Uh, doctrine of creation, having a, a general doctrine of creation, a doctrine of the fall. Uh, and again, I think there's a lot of variation within the church of how we describe the fall, how literal it is, et cetera, et cetera. But you do need a point in history in which humanity 
was in relationship with God and then had a broken relationship because mm-hmm. then God begins this rescue operation, which really defines the narrative of scripture. Um, and, and, and same with eschatology, right? We have to have some kind of agreement amongst Christians that Christ is returning uh, and God is going to set all things, as N.T. Wright likes to say, all things to rights. Um, and again, the, there'll be variation, but like we believe that God is doing that. Um, I'll also throw in, I think a doctrine of the church is pretty important. Uh, and again, someone can, I do believe people are saved outside of the institutional church. Absolutely. Uh, however, if you do not have a doctrine of the church, your spiritual growth is really going to suffer. Uh, and so what I think do that's you an mean important when you say a doctrine of the church. Do you just mean the value of community? What? That that the church is instituted by Christ um, as the primary uh, vehicle uh, for revealing the kingdom of God to the world, Hmm. uh, and that it is the primary vehicle for basically the the revealed uh, will of God within the life of the community into the great. It's like the the um, the locus of redemption or the locus of renewal, and which it kind of spreads out from that. I love Um, that. So yeah, I think I think the doctrine of the church is, is a pretty important one, um, whether you're conservative or progressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I, yeah, I, can I I'm sorry. Uh, okay, I just want to jump in. Is so let me, uh, for example. So I think I think we generally agree that you know on the on the big ones, Trinity, Incarnation, Atonement. We we would agree, I think, as well that that there are different theories of the atonement, and that and that uh, you know, say if you held the ransom theory of the atonement and you died, you would you could still be saved, for example. So that can't therefore be essential. Uh, so we would say there's different theories on that, but you said we need a doctrine of creation, but that, that doesn't really, or, or a doctrine of the fall, for example, or a doctrine of eschatology. But I don't know that those really answer the question because the question then is, well, which one? Because there are many doctrines of creation, many doctrines of eschatology. So I'd ask you if you think that one, uh, that if, that, that if there's play in all of those things, because you know, of course, that there are people who hold that certain doctrines of creation are essential. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, one of the reasons I'm not in the, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, even though I agree with virtually everything, is that they have in the last really 10, 15 years really made, not officially because Lutherans are confessional and the confessions don't address this, but uh, essentially young earth creationism, a litmus test of biblical orthodoxy of true belief. So they really kind of have an essential doctrine of creation as a young earth position. Wow. I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know if anyone holds that position here. I, I'm assuming not, but I'm, I'm, I would be curious as to what line you would draw on this, say, and Colin and Jeremy and Sarah, for that matter, uh, of where, when, like, when you say a doctrine of creation, which one would you say would be essential? Or is it just important to have kind of one in general, I guess? For me, it's, it's for me, it is a one in general concept that the idea is essentially that who created the universe God did it. Mm-hmm. Who created humanity? God did it. And this really brings us to right, the Imago Dei, which, again, I think is a very key concept. You don't have an idea of the, the Imago Dei, your faith's going to suffer. Um, the, the details of how Can God you did it. what that is? Uh, the, the image of God, that God has stamped uh, intrinsic worth and value on all people, uh, regardless of, uh, of anything. Everyone has it. Uh, and this means why all people are, are worthy of respect and, and love. Um, and that the details of how God created would be extraneous um, to essential doctrine. Um, but to your, your question about like, okay, well, there's some folks would say, no, you do need to believe in young earth creationism uh, in order to be like a true Christian. I, I, the way I would push back other than just saying, well, this is just my opinion, is that you would have to look at the spectrum of the church. And if you believe that you are in communion with other believers outside your own denomination, you kind of say, what's the baseline for every denomination? And that helps us form uh, something beyond our own opinion on what is, quote, essential. Hmm. See, that's funny that you would say that, because I agreed with you conceptually, but I don't know that that's how I would... I wouldn't use that as a litmus test because the whole church could go crazy and that doesn't change the truth of what happened. Nobody, nobody knows, right? Like nobody can be a hundred percent sure about old earth, new earth, creation, evolution. I fall pretty conservatively on that, but I know that it's not, it's not a deal breaker for God letting people into the kingdom. Right. At least I don't think it is, but I would never say like, well, if we're going to try to figure out what's true, we'll look at what all the churches have said and are saying, because there may come a day that all the churches lose their minds and we have to stand firm and say, like, despite what all the churches say, I still believe God made the world or whatever. 
but that gets kind of to our next question. So maybe I can just go there and then Jeremy, you can fill in and if there was anything you wanted to say to that, which is how are we approaching this question at all? You guys listed off some really good stuff. I think we probably all agree that those are core tenets of, of Christianity, but how do we approach the question? Is it about what feels right? Is it about what encourages spiritual flourishing, like you mentioned, Colin? Is it about what we think most aligns with the message of scripture? And of course, how are we figuring that out? So does there need to be a shared epistemology, like you know, the study of how we know things in order to find the essentials of Christianity? Yeah. Um, yeah, a shared epistemology is gonna be tricky. I know. Talking about epistemology, you're talking about the theory of knowledge. And um, you know that that obviously is a fun class to teach. I've done it more than more than once. And you know, even even within the class, you say there, you know, you've got some people that are more, you know, uh, you know, in line with Alvin Plantinga, and then you got other people that are not, right? So, however, I mean, if you go back to the early church, you know, Irenaeus, uh, when he was when he was concerned with the problem of heresy in the early church, he, he said that, well, you know, really, heresy is just a deviation from sound doctrine. Right. And that that can cast a pretty broad net if you think about it, because you're asking, well, then what is sound doctrine? And this this points to a number of things, but one of which is, is the importance of of hermeneutics. You know how it is that you get the meaning and that is in the message of the text. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, It's really, really important. And anything that deviates from that is obviously going to be a concern because you're deviating from what it is that God is in the text that he gives that what it is that God is trying to give you for your good and for your blessing and for your flourishing to speak to, to Colin's point. So sound doctrine is, has, has to have a starting point. That is a, if you don't want to go down the road of inerrancy, you, you could still go down the road of authority hmm. right? and what it is that is going to have its primary place of authority for your, your life. And for Irenaeus, you know, it's going back into, well, rightly dividing the word of truth. Right. And letting that unpack what it is that God has done and what he's revealed. So I think if nothing else, you have to start, you have to start there. You, you, you can also have some concerns about, you know, some traditions that are there, you know, tradition is not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, tradition can, so to speak, it can codify some things that have been that, that a lot of work has gone into hundreds of years of work that goes into the councils and you just go, "Eh," you know, obviously it, it helps you to stand on the shoulders of the giants that have gone before you. And so tradition has its place. But then you also look at the Spanish Inquisition and you go, well, but, you know, there are other times where you go tradition might need to get the old boot, right? Because, you know, what were there, 14,000 people, I think, that were, that were put to death for simply ha- possessing a Bible, right? And you go, well, that seemed to be something that was, um, you know, a, a tradition <laughs> and, and it wasn't a good one. You know, so what are the limits of even tradition? But, but I think Irenaeus was on to something. Anything that's a deviation from sound doctrine has got to go. Okay, but the question on the table is, how, how do we, get we there? approach, yeah, how do we yeah, that, figure That's out right, and that's why I was saying this is why you need to be taking a hard look at scripture. It's going to tell you how to get yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would primarily agree with uh, Jeremy that I think the, for most Christians, it, it is going to come down to how do we know, or how do we, how do we come to a, a reasonable belief? It is going to be through scripture. And it's going to be through uh, the tradition and history of the church, looking at the, the breadth of the church throughout history. Now, different traditions are, are going to say like, hey, I think my interpretation of scripture leads me to this very specific doctrine, right? And they're going to lean more towards the tradition. They're going to lean more towards their interpretation of scripture, however that is. But as we're talking about the essentials, the, the essential is that we're placing ourselves under the authority of scripture, however you understand that authority, uh, and that you're kind of saying, like, well, whatever I think is essential should probably be believed by the church in all times and all places, uh, because it'd be very weird if I discovered a, a new essential doctrine that the church has not particularly affirmed. Um, and so in one way, this is dangerous, right? Because we're like, well, what if the church goes crazy, Sarah? That's a, it's a good point. I do believe that we can have a reasonable assurance as Christians that because we believe that the church is instituted by Christ and the church is guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, that there will never be a day where all of the church has become apostate and we are the only true believers left. Um, We shouldn't, of course, blindly follow church tradition. Again, there are some denominations that put overemphasis on that. Um, 
but that it's important to look at uh, the spectrum of the church, uh, both Roman Catholicism, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, and Protestantism to say, okay, where do we all agree, even though we have some very significantly different traditions? Mm -hmm. You guys have each used a word that I, I think we need to define and maybe just um, talk about the difference. We use the word heresy. By the way, people throw that word around as a joke these days, like, oh, so-and-so is a heretic. Once in a while, you'll say that, and someone will say, don't say that. Like, that's such a terrible thing to say about somebody, but it's become almost like common parlance for just like, I don't agree with that guy. Um, so we've used the word heresy and also apostasy. You said something about being apostate. Maybe define what those terms are and what's the difference between them, and why might that be an important distinction for this conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, with, well, especially with regard to heresy, I gave, you know, Irenaeus because I liked what Irenaeus said, right? A deviation from sound doctrine. Now you may still have the hard work of unpacking doctrine. Yeah. Uh, but we're talking about God. You're probably going to scratch your head a little bit, right? So there's, there's going to be some work and that's okay. Uh, but when you think about apostasy or when I think about apostasy, uh, you know, and, and it kind of in its earliest form really had more to do with a political defection um in, in its earliest form but but really when you think of an, a person that is an apostate you're talking about they're they're going in defiance of some established system is what they're doing now i didn't say that that was good or bad i said it's what it is uh because if you're talking about um going back i gave the example of a spanish the spanish inquisition just to talk about oh there's some limits to tradition here right like moral limits well, you know, you could say the same thing here. Maybe there is a time where apostatizing, broadly construed, is not a bad thing, especially when uh, you have, for example, you know, a lot of people being put to death for or executed for possessing a Bible. Well, that's something worth being defiant about. Does that, does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to talking about what it is that Christians believe about the nature of God, the work of God, and so forth, then it becomes a serious problem. Right, because then it affects the way that we view God and the way that we interact with God and our hope of a relationship with God. So, you know, heresy and and apostasy. I, I think you could pull those two things apart, but I also think that you can see that they might be related as well. Let me let me jump in and uh, so I I came out of a uh, more liberal Lutheran church body and. And so I think that on, if you look at something like, say, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, like, which are kind of the, some of the historical boundary markers for the essentials of uh, you know, Christianity, but they don't contain everything. And sometimes there are consequences of beliefs that end up being very important. So one of the things I would like y'all's thoughts on are the importance of repentance in the Christian life. I mean, how essential is that? Of course, it's what the Apostles and Jesus himself preached, repent and believe. And we believe that, you know, believers still need to repent. Now, the question becomes repent of what? So you think of, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, where there's this long list that, you know, Paul has, but who will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, if you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, that sounds pretty essential. Mm -hmm. And he lists, you know, thieves and greedy. And of course, there's the, the passage about homosexuality, which we, you know, Colin actually talked about on a previous episode. But I'm curious from you guys, is how important the repentant life is? How essential is that? For true Christianity. So in my book, I would put repentance into that category of our response to God and for people, right? So in light of what God has done via his death and resurrection, that this demands a response because this is a, a radical event in history uh, and, and has really changed the game. And so repentance becomes part of that. And so yeah, again, if I was trying to conceptualize a Christianity that didn't have repentance in it at all, it, it would just cease to seem to make sense. Maybe somebody's trying to figure it out, but I, just, I haven't heard of one. Not even a good heretic has tried to go Christianity <laughs> without repentance. Um, well, see, I would argue that the mainline Protestant churches have tried to develop just that. I would, and, and, but, no, it's but, only repentance about social injustice. Okay, well, that's well. That's the question. It's like, well, repent of what? So they still. So the word repentance is still in the vernacular, but now it's like, well, we've changed what the sins are. Basically, you know, you have to repent of white privilege. You have to repent of economic inequality, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still the language and all the weight of godly demands on a spiritual life, but the exact sins have changed. 
Now, maybe they're right to a degree, but that's, but I would argue, honestly, that change in biblical sinful categories has essentially destroyed the Protestant church in America. That's, that's my concern. Um, it, because I think that they have made non-essentials essential. So anyway, but I mean, where would you, where would you go to know what you have to repent of, I guess, to, to remain a Christian? Hmm. That's a great question. Jeremy, you want to take a stab or you want me to jump in? Yeah, we, we can both take, take a shot at All it. Right. Um, well, uh, first, you know, when you talk about repent, you're, you're, you're talking about doing an about face and walking a different life. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's what it, what it means. And so even before when I was quoting Paul, if you believe in heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the, bed, the dead, then you are saved. Um, but then you have all of the other statements, both from the old and the new Testament, where it talks about obedience. Obedience is a very central, a very central theme throughout. I get your point, Evan, you know, when you're saying, well, you know, repent of what, and, you know, I, I would, I would venture to say that, you know, even if you have some concerns about the way that some of the issues uh, in our culture right now are being unpacked, most people would say that the idea of justice is thematically threaded throughout Scripture, and we need we need to have that mm -hmm. conversation. So the big the big talk is really about what is justice, right, biblically, and then how do we apply it? So we don't we don't throw it out, right? Um, but to your point, there is this give and take on on really what sins are there that need to be, you know, repented of. Um, I was trying to, you know, last night I was taking a look at, at Jude and, you know, in Jude, it talks about the ungodly um, that, you know, use, uh, use grace as a license for, you know, continuing to sin and so forth. And obviously you're like, well, no, when you come to Jesus, you're taking up the cross daily and you're saying, I'm dying to this. You know, I'm not going to go back to the problem that got me here. Uh, I'm turning in, in grace and through the work of the spirit in my life, you know, to, to change. But, you know, the, in, in there, and I just kind of had this down in, in scripture when Jude, Jude gives like, you know, 17 or 18 <laughs> characteristics of the ungodly. I mean, it, it was quite a list, you know, morally perver per perverted, those that deny Christ, they defile the flesh, they have a rebellious spirit, they revile the angels, they're ignorant about God. The, the, does this sound common? to what we've been talking about today. Uh, those who proclaim false visions, they're self-destructive. In other words, they, it, there's, it's presumed in Scripture. When it says, love your neighbor as yourself, it's presumed in Scripture that you love yourself. Right? So when you talk about you know, what it is that you repent of, honestly, that's going to be person-specific, isn't it? Uh, because the sins that, when you think about the sins that I struggle with, it's very possible that they're different than the ones that Colin struggles. I think with. our podcast listeners would like if you could just list those really quick, just like the list. Sins that I struggle with. <laughs> Thanks. In detail. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna write them down real quick. No, no worries. No. Well, I, yeah, I was, I was giving, I was giving some examples of those that just in in the quoting of Jude. You obviously could do more. There's a general. Uh, Paul talks about sins of sexuality and sins of idolatry, and every time he brings them up, he says, "Run." Mm. Right. He he doesn't say you know endure a temptation. He says, "Run." You endure a trial. You run from a temptation. Mm -hmm. Uh, sins of sexuality, which is the, the misappropriation of, a, of the good gift of sex, right? Run from that. Get, uh, sex is a good gift. Um, you know, idolatry, you know, where, you know, if you think about what Tim, Tim Keller over the years has really unpacked the idea of, of an idol and the manifestations that, that that can have in your life, and that can be from materialistic idolatry to image idolatry to, he gives a list of 20 of them, I think, in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Um, but you can think of other things. I mean, Paul talks about, you know, gossip, slander, maligning others. You could think of uh, the commandments, both in the Old and the New Testament, you know, that are still, still binding for today. It's, you know, the, when you talk about being made over into the image of God, these commands are there to direct us as to how that actually works. Just like a father, I'm a father, that I would do that to my four daughters. I try to give them moral instruction with the kinds of commands that I give them. I'm trying to be a guide in the things that I say, because what I see is the choices that they're making are not necessarily going to lead them down a good road. And thankfully I had parents that did the, the same thing for me. Right. So I don't think we have time for an exhaustive list is all, yeah. I'm, all I'm trying mm -hmm. to say, but I think we could probably agree that there are besetting sins 
sins that hold you back, sins that, you know, in the, the language you see in the news, it ensnares, it entangles, uh, and so forth. And that might be specific to Colin. There might be something that is different that is specific to me, which is why in scripture you see this broad net that I think that is cast, right? There are things that, frankly, I just don't struggle with. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily because I'm inherently virtuous there, per se, right? And then there are other things that are like, good grief. I mean, I'm 45 years old. When does it stop? (laughs) When, you know, on what day do I wake up and go, and there, it's gone, (laughs) right? And Colin's sitting over there going, I've never struggled with that in my life. What's that like? Mm -hmm. But again, just to wrap up my my point on this, all of this goes back to something Colin and I were agreeing on, which was we talked about what are essentials? Trinity, incarnation, atonement. And with atonement, you have to start talking about sin. Mm -hmm. And that means you start getting very specific as to, okay, what is it that is really holding me back Mm -hmm. from participating in life with Jesus? Mm. So yeah, I'll I'll add to that in the sense of, I, I agree with very much what Jeremy said. As we talk about essentials, right? It's always, there's always this tendency for us to kind of, and this is, I do it too, to add on the things that I'm particularly passionate about or concerned about and say, well, let's kind of bring that into our essentials category. But what I have to do is, to kind of put myself on the the negative receiving end. Um, so, you know, it, I think we all would agree that like in the super fundamentalist traditions where they're like, look, if you drink any alcohol ever, then you're just, you're not a believer. You're, look, you're engaging in sin. And we're like, well, yeah, but your interpretation, we have different interpretations. Like, no, no, you're wrong. Um, and so I think the, the key place is when we talk about repentance, uh, we, we are in this kind of constant uh struggle and discussion of saying, God, wherever there is sin in my life or wherever I see sin systemically, please reveal that to me as I am, you know, proceed in my sanctification, knowing that the key part is the belief in repentance and the motivation that repentance is important. We will have different views at different points on what is sin, how do we define, you know, a certain thing as a sin, but we're all agreeing and going back to the essentials, that repentance is important and we should never come to a place in our Christian life where we say to, to reference Jude, as he points out, right? Like, whoa, yeah, that is a sin, but I don't need to repent. Um, then we would say like, you've moved outside of the kind of essential nature of the Christian life. Yeah, no, that's really good guys. This is, I, I'm enjoying this conversation. I'm wondering if you think that some Christians have moved the goalposts and are either wherever you find yourself are either too progressive or too legalistic one, what was the initiating topic or situation that maybe began that shift, right? Because I hear people say, oh, everything started to go to hell in a handbasket when blah, blah, blah. I don't know. It depends on which side you're on that they'll say different things, right? And when then, Constantine took over, right? Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, but then the, the sub question there is, if there is a bridge too far, what is it? Now, I'm, I realize we're asking a question that's almost unanswerable, right? Like, it's not like one day you wake up and you, you gently shift your view and now you're a heretic. But for the sake of conversation, is there something that you think, wow, if you, if you move past that, that may, you may be outside of essential Christianity. I'm just curious what you guys think. Yeah, I, I don't know. When I was reading Jude last night, it talked about those that crept in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, you know, usually they don't walk in and say, all right, so first I'm a heretic. <laughs> right so who's with me and yeah. you know usually it's very subtle i mean and i'm saying that because of something that you just said sarah i i, I think the approach is usually very subtle it's it's it creeps in to borrow the language you know the borrow the language of jude and that's why he goes on to say you're going to have to contend for this right which means it, it comes from the root word for agony it, you you are going to have to work through this because it's not just one thing that's going to be coming in there're going to be multiple things mm-hmm. you know that will that will be coming in but man your question is any of the things that are creeping in now that's a big question what are some things that are coming in Jeremy do you think it might be safe to say that the things that we've agreed upon today if we just invert those mm-hmm. we might say that that is outside of of the essential Christian faith, someone says, hey, I don't believe in the bodily resurrection. I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't believe in sin. We would say, yeah, you, you might be out outside. Yeah. And again, I, it's, it's not a, a soteriology question. We just say, yeah, like, yeah. you're just saying something that's just not Christian. No, absolutely. And, and, and at the end of the day, really, the disagreement there isn't with me and you, Colin. 
the disagreement is with Jesus himself. Hmm. He's the one that made these claims. I'm just repeating them, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm just saying what I believe that Jesus said about himself and that I claimed for myself. And, and that is at least the way that I roll as a, as a, as a pastor, but, but all, is, is that's where I want somebody's struggle to be with. I want it to be with Jesus and not with me. Let's wrestle with, with the things that he talked about himself. But yeah, you know, Paul, Paul's, if you deny the resurrection, uh, yeah, that's, that's a game changer. You're out. If, if you have no concept of sin, then you have no concept of the need for atonement. Well, okay. And, and it also says what it is that you're willing to believe about Jesus, right? Uh, yeah, if you go back into the early church, I mean, some of the problems were exactly on these things. I mean, we probably pro- remember the Arian controversy, right? I mean, you know, Arius jumped ships and, he, you know, and he, the, the homoousios problem, right? You know, that Jesus is of similar essence to the Father, but not identical. Well, okay, it didn't take long. You know, who's Jesus? No. We need to know. One of the one of the things I, I think sort of is coming, if it's not already here, is uh, critical theory. We've done a podcast about that. Surely you guys are increasingly familiar with it. We're all having to be right now. Because critical theory really represents, I think, a different, I would argue, a different anthropology, a different way to view the world. Some people might call it a different worldview in that sense. Um, and if you look at the debate brewing that was put off for a year due to COVID-19 in the SBC over you, over whether, uh, you know, critical theory can be a useful tool or something. Oh, my, 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 my microphone changed. You got the gist. Of okay, what okay. Yeah. I think I lost you. Okay. Yeah. But any, anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I don't miss necessarily have to answer this, but I think that is a very subtle way, a very subtle way that essential Christianity could be compromised. It's because a lot of the same things can be argued for, but really from a different worldview. And even in the language of Jesus, of compassion, of love, of equity, of justice, things like that. But it comes at it from a different point of view, different understanding of man, man's nature, a different understanding of society, oppressed, oppressor, and ultimately different goals, which is why I don't think in critical theory you see, you're not seeing people coming together. You're seeing divisions now among race expanding and increasing. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I haven't studied it enough to to pretend to be an expert, but I'm curious if you guys think that that could be as some in the SBC are saying a helpful tool, or if it is itself so different from the promise of the gospel, that it is a compromise of essential Christianity. Was that question for me or both? You're the Baptist. <laughs> well, oh, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I, it's in every it's in every church body. I only pointed out yeah. because it came up officially at the SBC last year, it and in it, it was tabled, I think. But it it's gonna have to be struggled with. It, it's already in every mainline Protestant seminary. It's already it already is the worldview of mainline Protestant seminaries. Yeah, I I would I would tease some things out. You know, I, I've been a long time professor and. You know, in in my classes, even at uh, New Orleans Seminary and Southeastern Seminary, it would blow your mind how many atheists I had them reading. Now, part of that is because I was in the Department of Philosophy, and there were a lot of things that we needed to unpack, and so that that's fine. Um, simply reading through something is obviously not an endorsement, but it certainly can give you where somebody is coming from, right? So the things that I always would tell tell my students to be looking for is what are they identifying as the problem. And what is it that they are offering as a solution? And they may be misidentifying the problem. They may also be swinging and missing on the solution. You might get the problem right and then blow it on the solution. So, for example, if a person says, well, you know, there are uh, existing power structures that have been manipulated, you know, kind of what you see a, a common thread. Well, one, just ask yourself a simple question. Is that true? Isn't it fair? to just ask, is it true? You know, I'm, I'm with a cohort of a couple hundred pastors here in the Houston area. We're going to be doing a series of sermons in the month of October, specifically on race and the church. We've agreed to do this because I think it's important. We need to be talking about these things and how the church, you know, how the church can, can lead the way. Uh, but what if we said, well, the problem is about power structures and we need to replace the current power structure and just put a different one in question. Is that a solution? Um, not if you have a specific view of people, right? Where people take systems and then they use them to marginalize and oppress the other. And then you go, well, maybe the solution needs to be different. Mm-hmm. I think those questions are fair to raise 
And I think it's also fair to say, I understand where you're coming from. I just have concerns where it's going. Uh, so a lot of my friends, even at Southeastern Seminary, that were teaching, uh, you know, critical race theory, that's how they were approaching it. It wasn't necessarily from, you know, well, we're just going to give this blanket statement of endorsement and, and all. It's that we need to understand some things and then find a good way forward that is going to overcome the divisiveness and so forth that, well, frankly, we're living in a pretty fully orbed way right now. Mm-hmm. I, I want well, to just, uh, yeah, Colin, I want to hear from you too. But so far, the answer to the question of what's creeping in, what's mm-hmm. a bridge too far, Colin suggested maybe the inversion of the essential tenets we kind of put out earlier, which I like. Mm-hmm. Evan suggested maybe things like critical race theory are creeping in. I'm wondering if you think there's anything else that you would add to that list that, I mean, I, I'll just put out there, I think that some Christian mysticism stuff is getting a little bit dangerous. Um, kind of the new the new version of that that starts to say things like are we really sinful do we really need jesus he's nice to have along the way but do we need him for our salvation that kind of thing mm. i'm throwing that in the mix to kind of get the juices rolling not to debate Ooh. all right so you know? yeah let, let me i'll try to hit those really quick so to the critical race concept for me i view it as a hermeneutical tool all tools can be helpful. All tools can be theologically dangerous. Uh, and therefore, the key is to have a really strong understanding of the essentials as a means to create a, a healthy kind of like lens or checkpoint to make sure that whatever hermeneutical tool you're using, it won't uh, degrade those things that we agree are essential for your particular denominational body or your theology. Um, and so I would actually apply that similarly to say like Christian mysticism. I think there's some elements of Christian mysticism that are great. I think there's some elements of Christian mysticism you know, as Rohr talks about them, and I'm like, well, that seems to kind of go against the grain of the essentials. But pastorally speaking, for me, my job is not so much to be the gatekeeper of here's what hermeneutical lens or here's what, you know, thing you can or cannot believe. It's more to really disciple my congregation in the essentials to equip them to discern, to go, oh, I read Rohr's book. And I can say, well, what you think of it? They're like, well, you know, I like this and this. This part seemed a little funky. And when I hear that, I go, all right, good. You've been, you've been listening. You've been growing. You're able to discern for yourself in the, in the, the safety of community, of Christian community, so that they can uh, be mature believers in that way. And if someone comes to me and says, well, what do you think about Rohr and X doctor? Then I'll give them my opinion. But my my focus pastorally is generally equipping the essentials to give them a a healthy framework for interpreting all these different, whether it's a trend or a fad um, or. Oh yeah. I love that. It kind of reminds me of like the youth group example of like uh, people that study counterfeit money. The best thing you can do is study the real deal. So you know when something's counterfeit. Yeah. Um, I have one final question, but before we get to that final question, I want to do like a rapid fire, just four things that as I read through this recent survey of evangelicals, um, Mm -hmm. kind of four of the ideas that came to the forefront that I would just love to hear you guys give a quick answer to as we think about what's essential and what's not rapid fire, yay or nay, or mm, that needs more discussion. First, are people by nature good or bad? Really bad. Oh, good Presbyterian answer. <laughs> Jeremy? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with him. I, I, you know, you look at Paul in Ephesians too. I think it's pretty clear. Awesome. Oh, you guys are good at this. Okay. Two, was Jesus God? Yes. Yes. This is so easy. I love it. Oh, I love, this is good. Okay. Three, does hell exist? Needs yes. more discussion. Uh, huh? It, need, it needs more discussion, but I think, you know, uh, there are a number of things to unpack there, right? You get into the problem of is, is hell a place of a, that you can escape and so forth. Those are all nuanced conversations. All the while, that would affirm the reality of hell. Maybe the question would be better something like, is How do we understand hell or something yeah. like that? Yeah, I would just say there, there, is, there needs to be a, a consequence of those who are not reconciled to God, a place or a uh, being of estrangement, um, mm-hmm. whatever that is. That, that counts. Okay. Yeah. I approve those answers. All right. And the last thing is, is Christ the only way to peace and communion with God, life with God? Yes. So yes, but probably not in the way that evangelicals asking the question would uh, understand it. Okay. That's a so I'm, I'm just, I'm a Christological inclusivist. So that's, 
So yes, Christ is the only means by which one is saved, but that that saving power can extend beyond explicit confessions of faith. Um, gotcha, so, gotcha, yeah. I, I, it makes me think of uh, Spirit of the Rainforest, the book about the Venezuelan tribe where they never used the name God or Christ, but they believed in him. I, I get, I'm picking up what you're laying down. Jeremy, yeah. were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just saying, is he getting into the, the issue of like the, those that have never heard? Yeah, that would be the, the primary yeah. question, yeah. Okay. yeah. And again, and I wasn't trying to get into those sorts of apologetics. <laughs> I was just trying to establish some, but I'm glad you answered that way. Um, yeah. Okay, final question for the day. If Christian leaders were really committed to being unified by the essentials of Christianity, like what we've talked about, how do you imagine that changing the dynamics of the local church or broader ecumenism? And this is a great question for us to land on because, you know, Theology on Air was born out of Theology on Tap, which right. is multi-denominational, right? We've got Methodists and Lutherans and Baptists and non-denoms and Presbys. And every now and then we have someone on the panel that other people on the panel probably think is a heretic. And, um, but we all drink beer and agree at the end of the day that we love Jesus. So. Right. Yeah. Do you want me to ask uh, the question? Man, again? I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've got a lot kind of rolling through the noodle. So. Um, you know, on what that would, what that would look like, because a lot of what I'm thinking is very practical on what that would look like in terms of interchurch relationships, interchurch cooperation. Um, you know, there are churches that, you know, if people need to remember, I would, I would describe myself as evangelical, mm-hmm. uh, but that's a pretty broad net. And, you know, evangelicals at its inception really was kind of that middle ground between the fundamentalists, which now the evangelicals typically lopped in with them. And I'm like, I've never been that. Uh, the fundamentalists and kind of the liberals, and then you have really the evangelicals kind of striding the middle, <laughs> striding the middle, speaking broad strokes, you know, but you, you have it there. And it's been interesting over the years to have partnerships. For example, when I was up in North Carolina and both professor and a pastor up there to have this ecumenical approach in the community that I was, I was pastoring in with 14 other churches. None of the others actually were Baptists now that I think about it. And to see something really cool like that, I mean, that was a lot of fun. And the impact that we had on that, that community was was pretty enormous uh, because the needs there were very pronounced. Something like that, you know, I don't know if that's getting at the nature of the question itself, um, but it was also interesting to see on the other side, the push that I, pushback that I got from the connections that I was willing to make. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes back to some of the stuff that Colin and I were trying to unpack at the beginning of this, you know, which is, you know, what are the essentials? Why are they the essentials? And what are the things that, you know, at the end of the day, hey, we're, we're a brother or sister in the Lord. Would you like to go get a burger and talk about baptism today? Because we're just not on the same page. You notice that the Baptist said, get a burger. And the rest of us talk about getting a beer. <laughs> people very happy by saying, we can do, you know, do you know why that is, Sarah? It's because most beer is pretty gross. <laughs> oh, you haven't had their craft beers. You know, I mean, Hans Pills. Okay, well, we'll have to have another podcast about what beers are <laughs> which beers we'll see in heaven. But Colin, did you want to answer this question about how it might change the church sure. or, or ecumenism? Yeah, I, I think one of the fears that people often have when they talk about ecumenical work is that we would, uh, we would compromise on our doctrinal convictions, and that's going to lead to some watering down of our congregations or our communities. And I don't think ecumenical... Uh, partnerships do that at all because again it's saying like no no we know there are differences but look here are the things that we agree on and we believe uh, as jerry pointed out like the community impact that we can do united as churches uh is so crucial and i think it's also very crucial for for representing uh the nature of the kingdom of god because i think a lot of people view christians as divisive and we've kind of earned that reputation uh so when christians are intentional about unity I think that is actually a witness and a testimony to the reality of the gospel. And one of those places where I remember in campus ministry, it both broke my heart, but also was beautiful, was we, uh, we tried year after year to get uh, campus-wide worship, a night where all the campus ministries would worship together and everyone would have a different prayer and preach. And, and you know, we were keeping it real basic. Yeah. Uh, even, the, even the Catholics showed up for it, which was, nice. was awesome. We only were able to do it one year. Uh, and it was beautiful, but every subsequent year, there were always groups that boycotted it because they said, we won't worship in the same room 
as this other group or pray with these other people because they said if they if our students see us worshiping together or praying together that legitimizes mm. you as a christian ministry and so they said we can't do it and so it only of the eight years that I did campus ministry we only pulled off campus-wide worship one year and that really broke my heart yeah um and I think the students saw it too. They were like, they, you know, it was the leaders. It wasn't the students. The students wanted to worship together, but it was always the, it was always the pastors. And I, I think it is so beautiful when Christians mm-hmm. can worship together and point to Jesus as the, as the banner by which they are united. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, it'd be more beautiful. If we could start to see more of that. Agreed. When I, my, I mentioned my dad's a Presbyterian pastor and when we, they were leaving the city where he had built that church uh, from, we built it from scratch and we were having our final worship service. I don't even know who put this together, but there were, there was a Baptist church at the adjacent property and we built this little bridge between us, which is very cute. And I don't know who made this happen, but the Baptists came over at the end of our service and they walked in singing some song about being unified in love. And we all finished out the worship service together and there was not a dry eye in the house because it was like, this is a taste of heaven. This is what heaven will be like. It was beautiful. Um, okay, well, we're wrapping up here, but um, if listeners want to find you guys and pick your brains more, tell us where, Colin, where can people find you? Facebook's my main mode, so look for the dude with the funny hair and the clergy collar. I'm there. It's it's a juxtaposition from the way you look right now. <laughs> <laughs> Paradox. That's right. Okay, so Colin Kerr, you can look him up on Facebook. And Jeremy, what about you? Where can people find you? Yeah, same. You can go to Facebook. You can go to Twitter um, on both of those. Uh, you can always go to woodridge.org. You can find me there. I'm the guy with less hair than Colin, and I don't wear a <laughs> collar. I don't wear a collar. And I don't wear socks either. So, oh, I'm jealous. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk. Even on Sundays, not a believer. Sundays, (laughs) even on Sundays. That's right. It's got to be cold out there for me to put socks on. You know. I wonder how your wife feels about. We'll talk about that later. I was (laughs) gonna say real fast. I know we're wrapping up, but I was just gonna say on the last point. You know, at least we're not killing each other anymore, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Progress, man. Progress. (laughs) Progress. No, to your point, Sarah, usually on a Sunday morning, I'm getting up, I'm getting dressed, and I'm, and I'm starting to walk out, and Wendy looks at me and goes, Are you really didn't go like that. <laughs> wants me to change. <laughs> Pretty much every I, I Sunday. That and I usually do. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, we've, like I said, we've got to wrap it up. You can find those guys on Facebook, um, and you can find us, Theology on Tap, also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Theology on Tap Houston. And you can check out our website, which is houstontot.com. You can learn a little bit about our ecumenical leadership team, which is uh, something I'm pretty proud of. So, But for now, until we see you next time or until you listen next time, we encourage you, as always, to question freely think deeply and disagree as needed.